3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I'm in the studio with Inez and Spike. Good morning, Inez. Good morning, Spike. Good morning, morning Priya. Morning, guys. Yeah, um, before I forget, I just wanted to let people know that Jason's called in this morning with a shout out and extending solidarity to all union members. So good morning and thank you, Jason, and solidarity to all union members across the state. And um, yeah, just another example of the wonderful 3CR community and listenership that we have. People care about each other. It's very thoughtful. Yeah. um, Nice. So we, I guess, have uh, a packed show today and a lot of important stuff that we're going to be covering. Um, Inez, do you want to jump in? Yes, absolutely. So we have a very important interview with Uruk Commissioner Travis Lovett, who is a proud uh, Kerenbara Gunjabara man, who has spent his life advocating for truth and justice for First Peoples. Commissioner Lovett has held senior leadership positions in Victoria Public Service, including Executive Director and Acting Deputy Secretary, First People's State Relations at the Department of Premier and Cabinet, and has played a key role in supporting Victoria in treaty and truth-telling. He joins us today to talk about the Uruk for Justice report into Victoria's child protection and criminal justice system, which were tabled in Parliament on Monday, making recommendations to the government to transform child protection and criminal justice systems to address systemic injustice against First Nations. So, and after yeah. that, we're oh. going to be joined by uh, Professor Glenn McLaren. Or sorry, this was a pre-recorded, right, Spike? Yeah, so... This is someone, like I read an article during Science Week um, uh, by Professor Glenn McLaren, who lectures in philosophy, media and society at Swinburne University. Yeah, he wrote an article in 2017 and I wanted to get that pre-record on for Science Week, but we weren't able to. And so his article discusses how science has been separated from humanities and the impact this has had on critical thought. And so we sat down with Glenn and recorded a two-part conversation where we asked him um, who science owes an apology to, what it owes uh, an apology for, and what needs to happen for society for society to develop the wisdom required to overcome crises like climate change, um, which is a fascinating conversation because I guess when people think about science, you just see it as like techno- develop, you know, technological development mm-hmm. when it's actually about about uh, accumulating wisdom. Like when science was connected to philosophy, it was about collecting um, knowledge about the world that helps us live a, a better life. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a more connected life with the planet. And and so with the inception of well, with sort of industrialization and stuff like that. It's been separated, and they've also they've almost become like guns for hire scientists. So it's it's a fascinating conversation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think um, is some of the conversations that we've had, especially with First Nations uh, climate activists, show how like so many 
I guess, First Nations people's engagement with uh, the non-human world and relational kind of responsibilities is really that integration of scientific knowledge and philosophical wisdom, yeah. um, which is something that I'd be really interested to, to hear from Glenn about. Um, and after that, actually, uh, continuing on that theme of, of climate change, um, we're going to be joined by Professor Melissa Haswell, who's a professor of practice in environmental well-being at the University of Sydney. And she's going to be speaking with us about the findings of a recently released report which investigated the human health and well-being impacts of the fossil fuel industry. And this report, which was co-authored by Melissa, Jacob Hegedus, and Professor David Shearman, synthesizes peer-reviewed academic evidence of the myriad direct and indirect risks to human health and well-being posed by oil and gas developments, and it also highlights some serious concerns about the immediate health impacts of oil and gas extraction and processing for people and the environment, as well as their downstream contributions to the climate emergency, which I think the latter is something that we focus on a lot, but actually the immediate health and well-being risks um, is something that this report really highlights and I think is uh, really crucial. Uh, and then we also have, so there's a lot of doctors on here this morning. We also <laughs> be speaking to Dr. Meg Mundell, who is a NAM Melbourne-based author, social researcher and advocate who has explored themes of social inclusion, belonging, nature, homelessness and spatial justice. Meg's work includes editing a collection of stories of lived experience of homelessness called We Are Here, Stories of Home, Place and Belonging. Meg believes that hearing people's lived experiences of exclusion is key to changing social attitudes and achieving social and political change. So we'll be also, yeah, having a phone conversation with Meg. Yeah, it's a really exciting show as yeah. usual um, and keen for everybody to stay tuned and um, listen up to these great segments. So um, thank you, everybody, for organizing. And yeah. we will be back to you shortly with the news headlines. Awesome. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ujoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30 p.m. on 3CR Community Radio. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 7th of September. And listeners, please be aware that this content can be distressing for First Nations listeners and you can always contact 13YARN 24-7. The Uruk Justice Commission is calling for a major overhaul of Victorian justice systems after a year-long inquiry found evidence of ongoing systemic racism and gross human rights abuses committed against First Nations people. The Truth-Telling Commission has proposed 46 recommendations alongside a call for the state to transfer decision-making power, control and resources for first people's self-determination within the child protection and criminal justice systems. Recommendations include creating an independent watchdog to tackle police complaints and stopping incarceration of children under the age of 16. This is the first time in Australian history that a government will be forced to respond to a major reform agenda put forward by its own truth-telling commissions. In other news this week, and again with a warning that this headline mentions incidents that may be distressing to First Nations listeners. 
The Northern Territory government has been ordered, ordered to pay nearly $1 million to former Dondale youth detention inmates who were tear-gassed in 2014. The decision marks the culmination of a years-long legal battle of four former detainees against the Northern Territory government. The court heard that in the incident, Dondale staff employed the tear gas to, quote, temporarily incapacitate, end quote, another inmate, and the four plaintiffs were exposed to the gas and were also assaulted and handcuffed. In her ruling, the court justice said tear gassing should not have been among the range of options available to guards at Dondale and that young people in custody must be protected from exposure to such danger. And just another reminder for First Nations listeners um, that because this was quite distressing content, if you do feel like you need to speak to someone, you can always call 13YARN. That's 139276. Okay. Also in news headlines, residents at, at Oasis Village Caravan Park in coastal New South Wales have won a long fought for protections from an owner attempting to evict them. For more than five years, the residents have been fighting against attempts by the owner of the park, S&Q Assets, to kick them out of their cabins and caravans, while they repeatedly raise concerns about the lack of maintenance. With the support of affiliated residence parks, oh, wow, affiliated residence, residential parks residence association, residents challenged the eviction notices in the New South Wales civil and administrative oh, civil and administrative tribunal, where they're taking the matter to court. The eviction notices were rejected, and a court-appointed administrator will now work with the council to improve the day-to-day running of the village. The courts. The decision was a clear victory for the rights of residents and the Residents Association says it sends a message to the operators who think they can push people around. And finally, in news headlines, a collection of local organisations are calling for community support to guarantee the completion of accessible tram stops on Sydney Road, where there are currently no accessible stops from Brunswick Road to Coburg North. Long-term advocates are currently pushing for improved access ahead of the upfield train line being replaced by SkyRail, the construction of which will mean there is zero accessible public transport available in the high-density population area for at least 18 months. Advocates point out Victoria's compliance with the Federal Disability Discrimination Act is well overdue, with the Act legislating that public transport in all states and territories should be fully accessible by the end of 2022. A community rally will take place in a couple of weeks, starting near the bottom of Sydney Road at 1pm on Sunday the 17th of September. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 7th of September and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Copower gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Copower member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Copower today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Wah carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldum Chogo Edwards, for Balamwah, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR, 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my 
my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. And now we'll be joined by Yurok Justice Commissioner Travis Lovett, who is a proud Germara Gunjumara man who has spent his life advocating for truth and justice of First Peoples has held leadership positions in Victoria Public Service, including Executive Director, Acting Deputy Secretary, First People State Relations, and at the Department of Premier and Cabinet, and has also played a key role in supporting Victoria in treaty and truth-telling. He joins us today to talk about Uruk for Justice, a report into Victoria's child protection and criminal justice system, which was tabled in Parliament on Monday, making 46 recommendations to the government to transform child protection and criminal justice systems. And I will also mention that to First Nations listeners that this content can be distressing, so you, you can always call 13YARN on 13YARN. Thank you. Thank you so much, Commissioner Travis, for joining me here today. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for the opportunity and good morning. Good morning. Amazing, thank you. Um, I thought we'd jump right in because it's quite a, there's so much to say about the report. Um, But I know that this is Uruk's second interim report and considers systemic injustices in both the child protection and criminal justice systems. And it's obviously been about truth, understanding, transformation, and really centering first people's voices, experiences, and their right to self-determination. And I also know that, you know, throughout these hearings um, that you were really focused on promoting healing and minimizing harm and re-traumatizations for First People. Could you tell me a little bit more about how this was done? Because I can imagine this was an incredibly difficult um, process. Yeah, well, I mean, I think as, as you've done at the start of uh, introducing me here, you acknowledged uh, uh, our people and, um, uh, you know, recognizing that, um, you know, this is uh, truth-telling, it's, it's it is a deeply traumatic uh, process. We are talking about the true history of Victoria 
this is not Aboriginal truths of Victoria. We are talking about the true history of the impact of colonisation uh, on our people. So I just wanted to recognise that. Also, um, Yuruk's uh, main focus is hearing and listening to the voices of uh, First Peoples, uh, uh, their experiences, uh, the continued systematic injustices uh, that our community uh, has faced and continues to face uh, as well. Um, we've also got uh, four out of the five of our uh, commissioners are First Nations people, so this is the first time that that's ever been done. Uh, we also um, uh, have uh, other supports available to people who are coming before us um, or putting submissions through. We have a, a troops receivers who are also Aboriginal uh, and uh, are well connected to uh, their people and the communities and have um, quite a, a broad and extensive experience in dealing um, um, and working uh, actively to uh, support um, um, healing uh, and making sure that we are also not causing further harm to our people as well. Uh, we have social emotional wellbeing uh, embedded in uh, our um, organisation, but also that is available, that support is available to um, people making submissions uh, when we've had um, community information sessions and so forth as well. So um, that's uh, a really important point to make. We also have legal support. Um, we're always um, looking to avoid, you know, um, people having to tell, retell their, their traumatic stories uh, and events as well. You know, we've had witnesses um, who have shared uh, a family, uh, a story of a loved one um, on their behalf because uh, those people were unable to do so as well. So we also offer things like closed services, sorry, closed hearings uh, when requested by witnesses as well. And I think that's a really important point that gives them um, the reassurance um, that, um, you know, we are protecting them um, and their, their stories, but also um, their um, experiences and traumas as well. Um, but one of the beautiful things about the Yuruk uh, for Justice report released on Monday uh, has been the reaction from community as well. So many First Peoples have uh, called us, messaged us, uh, seen us in the street. Uh, we are based in Collingwood, uh, so seeing a lot of the mob around Collingwood uh, and um, then yarning up and telling us how much this uh, report means to them as well. But certainly it's a really pertinent point that um, our number one priority is, is hearing and listening and, and um, supporting our people through this uh, traumatic time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when they go through this process. Uh, but also many of them, I want to make one more point on that, sorry. No, of many of the people have uh, also said um, they felt lighter and it was a healing process being able to come forward and share their truths because so many people have been bottling their lived experience up for so long that uh, coming before you look, in, in whether it be through a formal hearing process um, or, or uh, put, putting a submission through talking to the truth receivers, uh, uh, talking to commissioners and um, um, talking to the social emotional wellbeing and having them there uh, at that point in time has really helped. Uh, and uh, other people have still continue to maintain connection to those services um, should they need them as well. Yeah, 100%. No, I think they're all incredible points. And I think it just shows when truth-telling is led by First Nations people um, and it is actually made to be inclusive and is led by actual trauma-informed practices. Um, this is what the outcome can be because we hear from so many people from the Royal Commissioner to Aged Care, Family Violence, 
whatever it is that they don't feel supported or they feel tokenized in their story. Um, and I think the other point that you mentioned about, um, I think so much of your, the, the trauma histories are within one person and then being able to share that and actually be listened to and heard maybe for one of the first few times with people that you trust is an incredibly healing process. And I can't imagine how um, important that was for people. Yeah, and I think probably another point of difference, and you've just highlighted that, that, and I'd probably just like to share with the audience of as course. well, is um, we're flexible in how we take truth. You yeah. know, uh, whilst people do get to tune in and see the formal hearings where we have some community and some organisations come before us and talk about um, their experiences and, and also their expectations for the future as well, um, uh, but uh, but many of the, um, I guess, the truth, much of the truth-gathering process is really, um, you know, in people's houses or in local organisations. So we're really flexible about how we take truth, um, uh, but um, how we take submissions uh, as well. So, you know, also I should actually take the opportunity to, um, you know, promote that part of the work that we're doing. We're, all, we're always, um, um, you know, truth receivers, um, and our social emotional well-being are always uh, available to take um, and sit down and meet with people. We do have many information sessions going across the state, um, so please um, keep an eye out on social media. But also, um, we can be contacted through our websites to be able to, um, you know, come and share your truths with um, making a submission, uh, and that can be done in many ways um, as well. So just. There's plenty of opportunities there, and also for non-Aboriginal people who who may have experience in in um, you know their family history around engaging with Aboriginal people as well. You know, uh, a few months ago we did open up the process to non-Aboriginal people sharing their truths around um, related to our terms of reference. Yeah, that's very important, and we can definitely put that in our show notes as well. Um, and I think yeah, following on from that, it's clear uh, that systemic racism lies at the heart of the injustice that is affecting First Nations people in both systems. But what really stood out to me in the report is where Yuruk st- started, um, stated that talking about systemic failures actually can risk obscuring the responsibilities of people with the power to address these gross failures and human rights violations. And all in their respective roles have the power and the responsibility to address systemic injustice. Throughout the hearings or throughout this entire process, why are people who have the power to address this injustice keep failing to do this? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, and, I, and I think, um, well, we had, you know, many government witnesses before us, as you've stated in the um, question there, you know, seven, seven formal apologies uh, from ministers, uh, um, as well as senior bureaucrats of the Department of you know, uh, well, Justice and also Child Protection Area. Um, you know, these people have, uh, you know, they are in positions of power um, and they have not had the, you know, I guess the political courage to create transformational change uh, for First Peoples. You know, I'm very hopeful for um, times, uh, you know, different times here in Victoria with the release of our report, You Look for Justice. Uh, but but I have to recognise that the government has made uh, quite a bit of progress here in Victoria as well on the three elements of um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. You know, Yuruk being the truth element of uh, that process. So I think that's that's really important. And I do want to recognise that there has been um, strong leadership in, in the establishment of, of Yuruk and also the First People's Assembly and some of the other work that they are doing. 
Um, we've also seen some important process in, in our inquiry into the child protection and criminal justice systems as they relate to bail reform, the age of criminal responsibility, mm-hmm. uh, but also public drunkenness, yes. uh, which also disproportionately uh, affect uh, our people. Uh, in the context of the bail reform, though, uh, uh, the recent announcements and changes, uh, I don't think go uh, far enough. Um, so again, it's, it's you know there's an opportunity there for the government to look into our report. We've made significant recommendations around um, you know criminal justice and child protections. Um, um, when, when you know government came uh, before you look, uh, as I said, seven ministers gave apologies, uh, and, and all made you know really um, I guess profound formal apologies to our people for the ongoing systematic um, um, I guess injustices, but also you know the racism that it, that that in uh, has particularly impacted our people. Yeah. Um, this is this is not just our people saying that the systems are racist. This is actually senior bureaucrats and ministers, the attorney general, police chief, you know, accepting and recognising that there's systematic injustices, but also racism playing out. Um, um, so I think that's you know that. Um, now, but the test is really for them to turn this into uh, to changing their systems and processes. And we've made a, we've made a really good recommend, recommendations, 46 of those, for them to be able to transform their systems uh, to be more, um, um, I guess, supportive of uh, making sure that our people over aren't overrepresented in the justice system. Our men, 13 times more overrepresented uh, in the justice system than non-Aboriginal men. Our women, 13 times more overrepresented. As I said, both the true test in these, um, I guess, apologies will be what the government does with Yudok's report uh, as well. And then we'll see, you know, ultimately how serious about addressing uh, the systematic injustice against our people really is. You can apologise, but we need to see action. Yes, definitely. We're expecting to see action. We've laid a clear pathway forward for government to be able to accept our recommendations within the timeframes. But we've also made some transformational recommendations for the future around um, for the First People's Assembly to negotiate new systems and structures. Yes, I think that's important to recognise that the acknowledgement is good and it's it's important and necessary, but the action is definitely important, especially when you've laid out such a clear path. And it's clear that the, you know, the criminal justice and the child protection systems, the present day failures are also still rooted in the colonial foundations of, you know, the whatever state of Victoria. And you're also, I know, has heard from First Peoples witnesses and organisations about the need for self-determination within these systems and how important that is. Uh, I know that we could talk about some of the themes of the impact of this, but I really want to touch on what is what does self-determination actually look like and what have you recommended? Ooh, what does self-determination look like? Well, that's, that's, that's a, a very important question. Um, uh, you know, well, first and foremost, our people have continually advocated for self-determination, uh, not just through the Yellow process, for many years. Um, you know, self-determination is not only an international right, sorry, an inter- uh, right under international law. It is the only approach that delivers effective and sustainable outcomes for our people. Uh, self-determination is not just about consulting or listening to Aboriginal people, Self-determination means our people setting the agenda on the issues that affect us. It means handing over 
the power and control so that we can design, establish and run the systems and services to support our communities to ultimately thrive. That's 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 what we're expecting. That's what we've been advocating for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the most meaningful uh, uh, transformative change needed in Victoria's trial protection and criminal justice system is to really embed self-determination, which is what we've recommended through your look for justice. Uh, we strongly recommended those. Uh, and um, we've heard from, you know, countless witnesses, um, um, you know, through submissions as well, that I talked about a little bit earlier about the trauma-informed approach to submissions. You know, uh, people have come before us and they've said, uh, not only talked about their trauma, uh, but also their strength and resistance, but also given us the opportunity to provide recommendations back to government around what they want to see in the future. So those, all those individuals' experiences create the recommendations for systemic change um, as well. You know, we do have the, um, uh, the First Peoples Assembly uh, and the Victorian government, um, who also we passed the report on to. Yep. Um, and there's a further opportunity to achieve uh, uh, those broader self-determining um, transformational recommendations that we've had through the treaty process. You know, treaty negotiations um, uh, will also help uh, boost our self-determination aspirations on the pathway to achieving a better future for all our people. Yeah, uh, through the treaty process, but also we are expecting that the Victorian government implement our recommendations, our, our, our more urgent priority reform recommendations, we call them, uh, within the 12-month period uh, that we've set out. Yeah, definitely. That is such an important point to leave on, that self-determination is led by First Peoples and that the recommendations are clear, they're urgent, they've been prioritised, there's a clear path, and right now it's just about collaborating and being able to work towards it. But um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Commissioner Travis. I really, really appreciate it, and it's been such an important, vital report. Um, but thank you again for coming on the show. Great, and thanks for the opportunity. And in my language, we say wuduk, which means for now, we never say goodbye, because we may see each other again, so wuduk. You're thank you. That was Commissioner Euro, sorry, um, Commissioner Travis Lovett from the Uruk Justice Commission, and he's a proud Kurumara and Gunajumara man who has spent his life advocating for truth and justice of First Peoples. He spoke to us today about the Uruk for Justice report into Victoria's child protection and criminal justice system, which was tabled in Parliament on Monday, making recommendations to the Victorian go- government to transform these systems to address systemic injustice against First Peoples. Salam be Hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. And we're back. Okay, so um, about a week ago, Professor Glenn McLaren, who lectures in philosophy, media and society at Swinburne University, um, 
Well, we sat down with him about a week ago to record um, an interview. He wrote um, an article in 2017 in Science Week um, called Science Owes Us an Apology that discussed how science has been separated from humanities and the impact this has had on critical thought. Um, we sat down with Glenn and recorded a two-part conversation where, he asked, where we asked him um, who science owes an apology to, what it owes an apology for, apology for, and what needs to happen for society to develop the wisdom required to overcome crises like climate change. Just before we go into it, he he wanted me to um, just to um, to stress that while uh, Glenn's you know he appreciates what modern science has given us in regards to knowledge and quality of life, what science needs to own uh, to own and apologise for the fact that they have augmented the conditions for some human life at the expense of the conditions of for life itself so here's the first part um, of our conversation a couple of weeks ago uh, we recognized science week here in australia uh, it has traditionally been a time when people from the sector remind us about the important contribution science has made to our lives and civilization and to encourage us the community to continue funding their work not everything that is developed by science is good for the community for equality and for respecting human rights sorry human rights perhaps that time could have also been used to reflect on some of the damage that science has caused the environment and where technology technological development is taking us to discuss these themes further, I want to welcome to Thursday Breakfast Dr. Glenn McLaren from the Department of Philosophy, School of Social Sciences, Film, Media and Education at Swinburne University. Welcome, Glenn. Uh, good morning. Oh, How are you oh, going? Sorry, thanks for having me. <laughs> no problem. All right, mate, you wrote, um, you wrote the article Science Owes Us an Apology. What does what it owe us an apology for oh, and yeah. who's it owe it to? All us, humanity in general, um, for some of the damage that it's caused, particularly over the last several hundred years. And this is something that, uh, I mean, Science Week struck me as odd in this way because, uh, you know, I look at some of the uh, implications of science and technology in the courses that I run. And perhaps I'll provide a bit of context for that, if you like. And so this is something that concerns me when I see science sort of slapping itself on the back in this week obviously science week is a uh, is a public relations exercise designed to um, improve awareness of science and what science is happening and what research is going on it's also designed to try and attract funding and attract public funding as well so you need to you need the public on board and you need their taxes to be going towards science and so they need to justify themselves and they're doing a good job. But in all of this, you know, like as a philosopher, you know, I'm all into self-reflection. You know, it's a reflective practice, you know. Always, I always find it amusing when the university, in third week of a university semester, the university calls it reflection week, when the students have to think about whether they're going to continue the course or not. And it's always a joke for us, well, every week's reflection week. <laughs> should be <laughs> in our course. Uh, and what concerned me uh, about uh, Science Week was what I saw was a lack of self-reflection on, and a lack of self-critique on uh, just what science is doing and where it's leading us and where it's taking us and where it's brought us so far. So you just you mentioned in your answer you wanted to give us a bit of give us a bit of so you're a lecturer. Okay, so the, the context for the article really comes from a course that I run called Philosophy, Media, Culture. 
it's a second year course I'm running at the moment actually I've, and the course as the name implies the course is a philosophical look at media and I I define media very broadly as anything that comes between me and my world which changes my perception or my understanding of it. And so and we're looking at these media and those things that come between us and our world and how these things then impact on our culture. And I define culture in terms like agriculture for instance about creating the conditions for the um, potential for life. And so anti-culture is the creating conditions that are destructive of life. When you look at media, you then turn to things like technology as media, for instance, and you look at the impacts that this has had on our culture over time. And one of the uh, arguments that has gone through the history of science and technology has been the argument about what is it that we lose in terms and what from the gains that we make. It's also the argument more generally about progress. Progress is great. We all think progress is great. But what is it we lose through progress? And so this is something I think that science does not reflect on enough in terms of its own practices. Um, and I, I've seen this at, uh, at universities too. I've seen this with, with science students and science graduates and the ways in which they, they're very focused on what they do, but they don't often have a broader awareness of what they're doing and where they sit. And they're not encouraged to question because many of them aren't encouraged to study philosophy of course they're not encouraged to question their own practices and their own methods there's a whole tradition of philosophy of science that emerged in the 20th century which deeply questioned the nature of science and its methods and its claims to truth but none of our students these days coming out of science degrees are being taught philosophy of science as far as i can see and so they're not being encouraged to do this what do you mean by science not being self-reflective what I mean, well, it's, you know, you can think of our society more generally as being, uh, you know, speeding up in many ways as, you know, the idea of all of us being busy and keeping busy all of the time or keeping occupied all the time and not being bored. And so there's a general sense in our society that we don't want to stop or we don't need to stop to actually think about what the hell we're doing. And so there's an encouragement to do that. There's encouragement to just keep your head down and keep beavering away at whatever you're doing and not question it too much. Many of our uh, work practices are designed so that we don't do that. And science is no different. You know, science is designed about, okay, we've, you know, we've, here's our scientific project, here's our grant, you know, we've got a grant, we've got to fulfil the needs of that. A big thing in universities these days is fulfilling the needs of our industry partners. Okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> In other words, making some shit widget or something, you know, so you can sell the people don't need. And so science students are encouraged to focus. And also they're encouraged to focus on their specialty and what they're doing and become specialised and not worry too much about the bigger picture, where they sit. I've encountered a lot of older, retired scientists, for instance. I used to often correspond with some retired scientists who then wanted to become philosophers because they realised that they'd spent their life obsessively working on one thing and now they're at a stage of life where they wanted to speculate about things more broadly but they didn't, didn't feel like they were in, you know, qualified to do it in some ways. Obviously, you know, as a philosopher, my interest is in self-reflection. My, like all of the you know, meditative uh, traditions, religious traditions, they're all about the idea of at some stage stopping, stepping back 
from the flux of reality and having a look, having a good look and then question what it is you're doing and where you're going. And I don't think that's something that's particularly being encouraged with science these days. So was there a time when that happened? Oh, yeah. Well, science, of course, is a product of philosophy. And um, in, the, in ancient times, ancient Greek, of course, philosophy came from ancient Greece. You know, it's a, it's a Greek word. Um, but the relationship between... The, science always had a relationship with wisdom. So in, in the Latin, it was uh, scient, sapientia, which is uh, wisdom, and scient, scientia, science. And so the purpose, going back to people like Aristotle, for instance, the whole purpose of science was to gather knowledge about the world in order to inform your journey towards wisdom. And wisdom is understood as the process of meaning creation in the sense in which, you know, as you develop knowledge of the world, as you encounter obstacles and overcome obstacles, etc., you start to then understand yourself. You, start, you overcome your egocentricity and you understand yourself as part of greater wholes and more connected with greater wholes. And as you ascend into these higher levels of wholes of generalizations, you understand yourself as part of something much bigger. So science should be the process by which we gain knowledge. And these days, we might talk about as information, for instance, we gain knowledge and information to inform our journey towards wisdom. The opposite, of course, is when science becomes so fragmented and specialised that everyone's just gathering data, for instance, and it's not no longer a part of that journey towards wisdom. It's just something you're doing, for instance, to fulfil the brief or to, you know, to help, to help uh, raise the status of your supervisor or, you know, or to, or to provide some product for a company or to fulfil the wishes of someone else, you know, the ideologies of the university or the ideologies of your nation state or whatever. So it's all about these sort of practical concerns or practical concerns about, you know, traffic management or overcoming uh, climate change or environmental problems or whatever, but separated from that idea of greater wisdom as a whole of, and, and, and improving ourselves in terms of greater wisdom and how science goes towards improving ourselves as human beings, for instance. Okay, and so what is the difference between truth and science and, and scientism? Because you made that oh. point that you know there's a that scientists trade a lot on this that that they're unveiling truth, but what's the difference between scientism and truth? To introduce the scientific with the introduction of the scientific method, this was then seen as a way in which you could get truth about the world, which and truths about the world which we can't perceive ourselves for instance um, so you, you think of um, Galileo for instance uh, showing how to measure you know, being able to measure the trajectory of a cannonball and being able to show through being able to measure it being able to show that the cannonball goes in an arc rather than in a straight line something that we can't perceive ourselves you think about Galileo showing that things you know, in a vacuum, fall at the same rate, which goes against our common sense, right? So a bowling ball will, for us, a bowling ball will fall faster than a feather. But that's because of the, you know, atmospheric conditions, the friction and all that sort of stuff, right? So to our common sense, bowling balls fall faster than feathers. But what science and mathematics was able to do was able to reveal to us things about the world, sort of underlying the reality of the world that we don't perceive through our senses. And so then human sense perception became devalued as a result of that and seen as being illusionary. 
and deceptive. And so science is seen as being the means by which we can overcome this deception and reveal the true reality of things. And any and in the process, though, any other way of knowing was degraded as a result. Scientism really is a sort of a dogmatic ideological position in which you argue that that is the only way in which you can get truths about the world. And any other way of knowing the world is... Um, and you see this, of course, the effect this has had on indigenous cultures, for instance, and all these other ways of knowing in the world. Uh, the feminist movement had arguments about the scientific method, you know, that it was based in a very masculine perspective on the world as well. So, But all these other ways of understanding the world, and also the ways of understanding the world uh, subjectively. So you go back to the uh, development of phenomenology and, um, and the, the focus on our subjective experience, you know, and the science really has never been able to understand that or explain that to a great extent. Uh, the problem of consciousness, for instance, which uh, the scientific method tended to exclude. So the scientific method tended to want to simplify reality or reduce reality in order to understand it. And anything that didn't fit into that, it tended to exclude, such as when, uh, when Descartes, you know, Descartes, tried to uh, take out to find all of reality as being extension he defined reality as being everything anything that can be measured using coordinate geometry because Descartes invented coordinate geometry and so it's that idea of you know uh, if you're a hammer the whole world is nails you know that expression <laughs> right no, no I didn't you know? <laughs> I haven't heard that one that's so that's, that's how you see the world you know so Descartes invents coordinate geometry and so he sees the world as anything that he can measure and fit into his grid his uh, x and y axis right but the only thing that he couldn't measure and fit into his x and y axis was his mind and so anything he couldn't measure and he basically handballed that to god that was his out was that that was his you out you can't measure this because it's it's yeah. it's godlike or from god, god yeah god provides our okay. mind so that's nothing to do with science so he argues well science, well science can't do anything about consciousness because that's something other than what we can measure so science is, very, science is very much just about what we can measure. And anything we can't measure is pretty much excluded or even worse, it's um, trivialised. And that was um, the first part of our discussion with uh, Glenn McLaren, um, lecturer in philosophy, media and society at Swinburne University. Um, he was discussing his article, 2017 article, Science Owes Us an Apology. And we'll have our second part of that next week. Just quickly, um, uh, Glenn's also asked me to... Uh, what he forgot to mention in that part was that he believes that science, that his argument that science needs to be slowed down. And there's a Belgian philosopher called Isabel Stengers, S-T-N-G-E-R-S, who wrote a book called Slow and Fast Science. She argued that science should be slowed down by allowing time for reflection and subjecting it to greater public scrutiny, as well as it making it autonomous from the market and political agendas. So I think that's a really important point and maybe, yeah, it's worth following up. And also, if you want to read more of um, Glenn's stuff, you can get it. You can find it um, at G L E N Glenn McLaren at Substack.com. Thanks. Amazing. I am so keen to hear the rest of this conversation and then keep this going. Thank you, Spike. Cheers. Chile. Fifty years of solidarity and struggle a special broadcast on the evening of the 14th of September. Hear from Chilean and Mapuche First Nations programmers and special guests from Latin America and beyond. 
for a six-hour special broadcast, including music, conversation, testimonies, and past and current issues. Tune in for stories of resistance, struggle, and solidarity. Thursday, the 14th of September, 6pm to midnight, on your community radio station, 3CR. Gas is a toxic fossil fuel, yet gas exploration by sonic explosion is planned for the Otway Basin. Seismic blasting kills plankton and deafens whales, disrupting their migration. This blasting is opposed by coastal communities from Geelong to Apollo Bay and Warrnambool who strive to protect the ocean ecosystems. Bring Whale Song into Nam City, Friday the 15th of September at Queen's Bridge near Flinders Street at 4.30pm and onto the State Library for 5.30pm. Rally for Whale Song Not Gas is hosted by Extinction Rebellion, a 3CR supporter. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now joined by Professor Melissa Haswell, who's a professor of practice in environmental well-being at the University of Sydney. And Melissa is joining us to discuss the findings of a recently released report investigating the human health and well-being impacts of the fossil fuel industry. This report, co-authored by Melissa Jacob Hegedus and Professor David Shearman, synthesizes peer-reviewed academic evidence of the myriad direct and indirect risks to human health and well-being which are posed by oil and gas developments and highlights some serious concerns about the immediate health impacts of oil and gas extraction and processing for people and the environment, as well as their downstream contributions to the climate emergency. Now, this conversation is going to touch on some uh, potentially distressing topics. So for listeners uh, who might be affected by any of this, if you want to speak to someone, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Uh, For First Nations listeners, you can call 13YARN. That's 139276. And uh, Melissa's also very helpfully recommended the website Psychology for a Safe Climate, where you can find resources um, that are basically tailored towards uh, having those difficult conversations and processing information about climate change and how that is affecting people on the personal level. So you can go to psychologyforasafeclimate.org. But for now, we'll begin that conversation with Melissa. So good morning. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Priya. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, I really appreciate you making the time because I know that, you know, the report launched uh, this week and there's been a lot of um, important uptake of it. So it, it's great to be able to, to have you here. So um, I thought we could start off by discussing the origins of the research report in an an explicit expression of public health concerns. So I understand you proceeded based on alarms raised by Darwin pediatricians about the the plan to frack the Beetaloo Basin, as well as other local oil and gas related activities in the Darwin area. So could you tell us a bit more about this? Um, sure. I guess first I'd like to say that uh, concerns about um, unconventional gas, that is the fracking, um, uh, started for me back in 2011, um, working side by side with community and also with uh, uh, Emeritus Professor David Shearman, which is about when I met him and Doctors for the Environment. We were extremely concerned about plans to do coping gas mining in the water catchment of Sydney. <laughs> um, luckily, we um, 
uh, we won that battle in a sense, but that's where we began to look at the health impacts that were coming and emerging uh, in research from the United States. And that proceeded over to 2014, the New South Wales Chief Scientist did a report, 2015 in South Australia and uh, Victoria did a report. Uh, Then um, a lot of that actually led to the adoption of pretty much taking precaution. Um, You notice I didn't say Queensland, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they haven't really had an inquiry, and there has been an enormous amount of CSG in, in Queensland in our uh, Darling Downs, Western Queensland. But 2017 is where Northern Territory popped its head up with the Pepper Inquiry 2018 in WA. And both of those um, inqu- inquiries, although it raised issues, it didn't really take these health issues very seriously. Um, and now he- here we are in 2023 with uh, concerns in both of those places. Uh, Northern Territory, the Beetaloo Basin, it looks like it's the first cab off the rank planned for shale gas mining mm. uh, and probably spreading to uh, the Kimberley region of WA. Yeah, and it's um, it's been really important here to to reorient those concerns uh, or, or the, the the focus on this to the the immediate health impacts that these are going to have. And you know, across our conversation, I'm sure we'll be talking a bit more about these you know deferred considerations of, of climate change. Um, health impacts. But your report identifies several key areas of concern, which include procedural risks of oil and gas operations, contributions to climate emergency, harmful chemicals, contamination pathways, and impacts on the physical, social, emotional, and spiritual health of those living near oil and gas fields. So could you tell us a bit about why you chose to categorize the issues you identified across these areas of threat, and also how you explored their interrelationship across your review of these peer-reviewed studies that you um, went through for the report? Uh, Certainly, thanks. That's a fantastic question, because... It is such a huge operation. I mean, we often talk about fracking, but the word fracking only refers to a tiny or, or one part of the operations where they smash down chemical sand and water three or four kilometers down um, into the shale gas if it's shale or a little bit um, more shallow for CSG. Um, essentially, in order to understand these impacts, I think it's really important to to see, to get an idea of you know, all the harmful chemicals that are used in the operation and those that are brought up in the water, the wastewater, um, and thinking about the, the whole operation, thinking about this happening thousands, hundreds to thousands of times on different wells, many times on these wells. So the, the scale of the operation is huge. So there's such a uh, probability of making a mistake, um, of having spills and um, and... Uh, accidentally or even deliberately, um, sometimes uh, there's this application of these chemicals deliberately in the United States for getting ice off the roads and things like mm. that. So the chemicals, when they get in our environment, um, it's easy. It's it you know, it will happen that people become contaminated. The, the risk of that occurring um, and then leading to these other uh, the actual health impacts. So we started back at those and then. Um, we're not surprised by the physical uh, health effects, which mm-hmm. have been um, quite well documented. Uh, 2020 to 2023, the, the literature's exploded in the United States. Very, very powerful studies. 
uh, showing asthma, uh, exacerbation in children, ad- aggravated respiratory diseases and hospitalizations for heart attacks, heart failure, some cancers, um, and increased death rates even, um, as well as impacts on the developing fetus. So when a mm. pregnant woman lives in near these operations, we see uh, lower birth weights of their, two, of their infants. Um, we see uh, increased rates of birth defects, quite serious ones, blood cancers. So there is just a whole array of health impacts along that way. And really, it's not right to separate the social, Mm -hmm. emotional, and spiritual health because lives are changed. People don't recognize their communities anymore. Aboriginal Aboriginal people um, are devastated by the impacts on the environment. Um, So it's a whole array of issues that cause that, that have the potential to cause these health impacts, and we also see them. Mm. And, yeah, I think um, something that is really unique about this report is that it looks at so many of those different dimensions of impact and, you know, goes from really the, you know, starting with those procedural risks by looking at what it means to engage in this type of extractive activity and then um, and then kind of mapping out from there how different aspects of um, the extraction of oil and gas processing um you know, release of chemicals, contamination pathways, all of those things then feed in in different ways to impacts on physical, social, emotional and spiritual health. Um, Now, I'm interested as well to hear a bit more about your report's findings on gendered violence, because I think this is something that really... um, is, is sidelined in a lot of conversations about health impacts or social impacts of uh, oil and gas extraction in uh, so-called Australia. But obviously you found a lot of international evidence that really pertains to the, the situation here and could uh, be, I guess, a, a warning sign. Yes, exactly, Priya. You've, you've said that so well. I just really want to commend you for the way that you've really got, grasped yeah, the magnitude and the complexity of this issue um, and sadly, as uh, all around the world, First Nations peoples have been uh, differentially impacted or, or impacted much more greatly, certainly in Canada and the United States. The places where this um, industry has really grown has been in places where um, uh, First Nations peoples are uh, still with the land um, and still present. So, yeah, if you think about all of these operations, you have to also realize there are is a huge mobile workforce. So there's massive numbers of truck movements in and out, carrying chemicals, carrying infrastructure, etc. You have um, a, a massive uh, FIFO fly-in, fly-out, or drive-in, drive-out uh, workforce. Um, this is often in the developmental stage. It doesn't necessarily continue um, as... Uh, it moves from place to place. Um, and then, yeah, so when we think about these, we think about jobs. There, are, there aren't that many local jobs. That's probably what the point I want to make there. So you've got a lot of people coming in to these areas and um, the risks uh, to, uh, to the community surrounding these um, developments, very vulnerable to this workforce. Um, to the people coming in and out um, and the 
in Canada, this really was highlighted in the missing and murdered uh, women and children, um, uh, First, First Nations Canadians, uh, heartbreaking mm-hmm. reading. Um, also in the United States, a similar situation. Uh, and I guess people, uh, people who say, oh, that wouldn't happen in Australia... If anybody's read the Western Australian Inquiry into sexual harassment um, in our own minds, in our own fly-in, fly-out minds of women working, uh, we see uh, that that was coming from an inquiry that what the, what the uh, commission was hearing was shocking for them, um, even though they were somewhat prepared. So mm. I think it's... It's, it doesn't take too much thought to say, okay, think about the communities nearby um, that have, uh, oftentimes in our remote areas, we don't have the protections. Um, I mean, it's an issue everywhere, but you can imagine how it uh, could potentially play out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, looking into the sort of colonial history of the the pastoral industry across this country as well, we can see um, how those impacts have already kind of happened in in, in a different way across um, like, you know, early colonial agricultural production and the impacts that that's had on communities and, um, you know, introduction of gendered violence in that way. So um, I guess I was also hoping that you could speak to the importance of this report in making an intervention in public discussion about climate change, which often treats the health impacts of climate change and the ongoing industrial processes that fuel it as a deferred concern. So what are your thoughts on this? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, look, it's, I, we can see all of the things I'm talking about here are really, they're entirely consistent with the things that we need to be able to strengthen our ability to deal with climate change so fossil fuels don't they it they obviously drive climate change uh, about 80 percent uh, of climate change is the result of uh, fossil fuels um, so when we if we add to that all of these things that occur in the pro- production and the movement um, of the fossil fuels we're actually we're actually destroying our capacity to adapt as well, mm. like threatening our water, our food, our social cohesion, um, people's health and well-being. We are uh, all of this is actually uh, feeds right into what climate change will be um, making even worse as well. So uh, the separation, I've, I've never understood it, um, and mm. I think we need to stop thinking that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is really, I just can't keep, uh, like, can't emphasize enough that this is such a foundational contribution of this report is to reintegrate those concerns which have been erroneously um, separated in, in public conversations. And I know the Australian government is currently in the process of developing a national health and climate strategy, but then the language again used around this appears to treat climate change impacts as distinct from the actual operation of the extractive industries and the kinds of health impacts those have. So what actions would you like to see from both the federal government as well as state and territory governments in response to this report? Yeah, sure. Um, It's important that you said state and territory because a lot of these resource uh, Decisions are being made, but then the federal government, in terms of our commitments globally, etc. 
So I think uh, I can easily, I probably say on behalf of the authors, um, both um, Professor David Shearman and um, Mr. Jacob Hegedus, we say cut through it. Come get back to the simple facts. Our people are Australia's greatest resource. We are at risk through our climate emergency, um, and our people are far more valuable than the fossil fuels that we're digging up from the ground that are actually uh, threatening our future. Um, just two, two um, points I'd like to say. The Lancet Commission in their 2022 countdown report on climate and health said they may, uh, that our, our health is at the mercy of fossil fuels. Um, let that sink in a bit. Um, so, like uh, UN Secretary General Guterres said, we need to wake up. We need to realize this connection. We need to work hard to and fast um, in terms. And so, waking up and then stepping up through that action. So, if people can you know, tell your neighbors, talk about this, um, and pressure your your MPs, your uh, in the government to say, no, it, it is time to make this change now. Fossil fuels, we don't want our health uh, to be lost because of fossil fuels. Yeah, absolutely. And a really powerful statement to end on. Um, I will have links to the report and to the conversation article that you co-authored with the co-authors of the report as well in our show notes. But Melissa, thank you so much again for making the time to come on the show this morning. Thank you so much, Priya, and thanks everyone for listening. Wonderful. And that was Professor Melissa Haswell, who's a professor of practice in environmental well-being at the University of Sydney, and who joined us to discuss the findings of a recently released report investigating the human health and well-being impacts of the fossil fuel industry. Now, if that conversation raised uh, anything for you that you wanted to talk about, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. First Nations people can call 13YARN on 139276. That's 139276. Uh, you can also contact 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. 1-800-737-732. And finally, for some resources and support around navigating some of those concerns about um how we deal with climate change in our everyday lives and how we uh, adapt to those changes, uh, you can head to psychologyforasafeclimate.org. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Dunbar Law's legendary trivia night returns yet again to light up the social calendars of the best and brightest minds in Melbourne. Come down to Richmond Town Hall on Friday the 15th of September to raise much-needed funds for the incredible 3CR. The night starts at 6.30pm and will feature awesome trivia capped off with a giant game of limbo and dancing. Get your tickets now, available on Humanitix on the 3CR website. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR.
Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Okay, so Dr. Meg Mundell is a NAM Melbourne-based author, social researcher and advocate whose work has explored themes of social inclusion, belonging, nature, homelessness and spatial justice. Meg's work also includes editing a collection of stories of lived experience of homelessness called We Are Here, Stories of Home, Place and Belonging. Um, and so could you please welcome Meg to the show? Morning, Meg. Morning, Spike. How are you Thanks going? Thanks for having me. Good. How are you? Yeah, I'm going well. Thank you, mate. Thanks for making the time to come on this morning. No worries. I was happy to be here. Awesome. Okay, mate. So what, what, what is spatial justice and why is it important for us to hear the stories of people who have experienced social and economic inequality or social exclusion? Well, spatial justice, I think of it as like a sister to social justice. So it's about equality, justice, rights, fairness, but it's applied to spaces or places. Yeah. Uh, so we might ask, how are resources spread out geographically? You know, do people in richer suburbs have more green space, more parks than residents in the poorer areas? And yes, they do. Well, that's going to have flow-on effects that create further inequalities. Um, or we might think about public space. Does our city have a policy where police move on rough sleepers, push them out of the well that's safer areas? Well, this is public space. Rough sleepers are the public. Yeah. They have no private space, so you could argue they have even more of a right to be there. So it's it's looking at issues, uh, these social justice issues, through a kind of um, space spatial kind of lens, I guess. Um, and your other question was about why is it why impo- it's important yeah. to hear people's voices? Yeah. Uh, I think there are a few really good reasons. Um, firstly, people with lived experience who've been through things. They know stuff. They know stuff the rest of us don't. So, like, if you've never experienced something, your understanding of it's going to be patchy, right? Yeah. It might even, it might even be wrong. Um, but people who've been on the receiving end of flawed policies or discrimination, hardship or trauma, they have insights that the rest of us don't, and those insights are hugely valuable. So if we want to create better systems or improve how we deliver services, we need to listen to the people who've been there, who've lived through those things, because they know where the gaps are, they know where systems fall down, and they know how that affects people's lives, and they'll have ideas to improve things. So if we don't listen to those voices, we're ignoring this huge untapped well of knowledge, and we'll keep making the same mistakes. So that's kind of, a, I guess, society having a bit of a selfish interest in listening to those voices, but... I guess it's also about belonging, you know? If you feel like your voice doesn't matter, nobody's interested in your experiences, then you're going to feel excluded and devalued. But by having a voice, getting a turn to speak, not just listen to others, that that, as humans, that makes us feel valued and heard, you know, and you matter, you're included. And then if someone else hears their own experiences reflected in your story, then that's also validating for them. And then we've got to create a sense of belonging. That's good for everyone, right? Yeah, 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 I, I hear. 
Yeah, I think I think being able to tell our story and yeah, having the opportunity to speak our truth is incredibly powerful. Um, but I also, so what do you think? What is it about the way things are currently that ex, that excludes that that works to exclude some people from the the public discussion or the public dialogue? Well, I think there's a, a few factors going on there. One thing is power, right? Yeah. Um, you know, is that saying um, history's written by the victors? Well, people who are powerful, institutions who are powerful, they're really good at hogging the limelight and setting the agenda, you know, and giving us a distorted picture of the world. Um, you know, they own the social media platforms, they have PR teams to push their views, and... You know, those views can be very persuasive, but they don't reflect the wider reality of the world. So there's, you know, there's that. There's, there's the, the, the powerful kind of hogging the messaging. But it's also, I guess, um, people, you know, like I said before, people feel othered or excluded when they're discounted or left out or ignored or shunned or stigmatised. It can be done in a subtle way. It can be blatant. But it's also about that us and them mentality, I think. If you're on the wrong side of that, you become them. Yeah. You know, and the message is you're less than. You, you, you don't belong. Yeah, yeah. Think... Sorry, sorry to interrupt okay. me. No, that's it. You go, you go. Yeah, oh, look, uh, so how... So the storytelling aspect of it, like I, I'm just reflecting on the interview with uh, we did with uh, Professor McLaren and the Uruk, um, the Commission, um, the Truth Commission. So it's incredibly powerful to be able to tell our stories and to be able to be part of the, the the public or the public dialogue or, or even political discussion. How how do we how do we use that to say yeah how do we use the, those stories to to change social attitudes and opinions yeah how do we do it? Well, I think it's it's really 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 important, and there, there are some challenges, right? Because it, it often it comes down to resources. You know, who's got the resources? Yeah. Um, so. So story, you know, as I mentioned, kind of some some stories are dominating the narrative. You know, then you're going to end up with something very skewed. So it's really important to elevate different voices that we make space for counter narratives that different communities can speak for themselves instead of being spoken for or spoken about. So, because um, stories can be used for evil too, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they can be used for yeah. powerful force for change, but they can also be used for evil. They yeah. can, you know, they can be. Um, you know, kind of racist uh, propaganda, or they can be, you know, sort of persuasive, stigmatizing things. So I think funding um, is always important, creating more opportunities for people to tell their own stories, make their own media, yeah. write, make art, funding for creative group projects, so arts and media and training. Um, and government and community services, like setting up structures so that people with lived experience can actually contribute their expertise, yeah. policy making and service design, give them a seat at the table, pay them to be there, you know. Um, research as well, research and public education, like we can support people to collaborate on research projects using approaches like co-design or peer-to-peer -peer surveys and, you know, perhaps training and support for people with lived experience for public speaking so they can talk in schools and workplaces. So we're seeing a shift um, 
divorce is happening more, but we're not quite there yet. You know, sometimes no. it can be a bit piecemeal or tokenistic. To- yes. Or, yeah. 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 Like I reflect on, like especially during um, during election time, I think it's the testimonials are incredibly powerful. Like I, I know some, yeah. like the union movement uses them really powerfully. You know, personal testimony. I think that's yeah a really effective way of changing opinions and yeah, challenging uh, uh, the dominant sort of narrative. Yeah, so um, how, how do we support, like you, 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 a couple of examples is like co-design. Um, I guess what needs to, to, to happen is maybe some policy change to enforce, like that to force community organisations to provide platforms for people having a lived experience. I think that would make really good sense, actually. Yeah. I, I think that, um, I mean, it, it shouldn't have to be forced, but really it's not happening on its own everywhere. Many, many organisations are, but many kind of aren't, you know. They also need to be, um, it should be mandated, yes. I think that would be really good. I think it should also be, you know, funded, so you have to have proper resources for that to happen yeah. um, and structures for that. You know, give someone a seat at the table, give someone a seat on the committee and, and, and listen to them and treat them with the same respect um, as as others. You know, councils could be doing this as a, as a matter of course. That's a great um, point. Councils, definitely local councils, yeah. yeah. Local councils, that would be fantastic, you know, to, to if they if all councils in Australia had somebody with lived experience of homelessness who had a seat at the table I reckon things would be different because um, even in just my own neighbourhood, right? Yeah. Try to find some support for somebody and no, that person's got mental health issues. They can't use our service. Oh, we only service that area. There's all these gaps and it happens at the sort of local level. And the council offices are not anywhere near this stuff. Um, They're kind of disconnected from what's happening out on the streets often. So I think that would be, yeah, that'd be great. Mandate it for councils. So can you identify any projects where lived experience and, and people who've had a lived ex- where that they're guided by the people's lived experience? Like any books or, yeah, research well, that you're happy to talk the, about? The book, uh, the, I guess the book that you mentioned in the beginning that um, I was involved in, We Are Here, that was... That was that's all stories written by people who've experienced homelessness. So the aim was to showcase their talents and elevate their voices. And it was forty people. It's a fantastic book. It's probably the thing I'm proudest of ever. Yeah. Um, the writing's just fantastic, and the people are just—they really shone. You know, um, they all got paid industry rates. Um, we had contributors ranging from new writers award-winning authors like Claire G. Coleman and Baruz Bichani. Um, and, I mean, there was an editor, so that was me. So there was gatekeeping there in terms of, you know, I'd worked with the authors to polish their pieces as much as possible. But the this topic of what they wanted to write about was completely up to them. They yeah. didn't have to write about homelessness. They could write anything with the loose theme of kind of place. Yeah. And that, that book is just, it's almost all... Their voices is a short intro in the front, and it's just people's voices and people's stories, and it's really powerful for that reason. 
Yeah, I just like just quickly want to mention what we're talking about here. It's not just people's lived experience of homelessness. It could be some any sort of trauma or abuse or any type of exclusion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they could write about anything that they wanted, but they also wrote funny stories. You know, because people yeah. are funny. Yeah. <laughs> they also wrote funny stories and like beautiful poetry, and so trauma was a thread running through a lot of them. But there were also there were all sorts of stories because all kinds of people have have been through homelessness, like a very broad kind of um, group of people. So yeah, it's it's a really it's quite a powerful powerful read. Um, and I mean we we have organisations doing um, lived experience, you know, putting people with lived experience into positions where their voices are heard. Um, uh, right now, I'm working with the Melbourne Zero campaign. Yeah, can you can you just about, can you give us a bit of info? What the what? So, what is the Melbourne Zero campaign? Well, it's about building grassroots support, and the end goal was to end street homelessness in our city. You know, big goal end all homelessness, but yeah. let's start with that first because that's a really rough way to be living, and it's really hard on people. So, creating a community of people and organisations who support that goal because we can solve it. We can solve it. We just need community support. We need political will. So people can sign up to the Melbourne Zero website. I think there's 5,000 people we've signed up. I think we're aiming for 10,000. So you don't get spammed. You don't get asked for money. You just get a monthly newsletter with some thought-provoking stories and interviews and some tips on actions people can take. And there's also... um, some stories that come with that and some of the stories are the voices of people with lived experience. There are also videos of people speaking about their personal experiences of going through, you know, how they ended up falling through the gaps and being homeless and what it was like and what it's meant to have a home. Um, And, yeah, we've got a story coming up called Talking to Kids About Homelessness. You know, how do adults, how do we respond when kids ask us, well, why is somebody sleeping on the street? Yeah. And what about kids who are homeless themselves? What do they have to say about how our society is working? So we've got the voice there of Debbie Rice. She's a guest speaker with the Big Issue Classroom Program. And she talks to school groups about her own experiences of homelessness, gets the old brain cogs ticking over. And... um, so, yeah, her voice is in there. Her insights are really valuable. And also spoke to Professor Catherine Robinson at the University of Tassie. And she works with homeless children and young people. And she shared some of their insights and their voices along with her own knowledge. So, um, yeah, we, we still don't have enough voices, enough of a mix of voices out there. And I hope that, you know, we can push things more in that direction uh, and support people to tell the stories if they want to, of course. You know, yeah. sometimes people don't want to share no. personal t- stories of trauma because it's re-traumatizing. Yeah. But if people want to share their stories, then you know, there's a lot of ears out there, and it's. I think it would it would make the world a better place if we could hear people's real experiences. I guess it's part of a lot of people's journey towards healing also, Meg. Uh, yeah, and, and I get you need to be ready. Yeah, yeah. it takes time for people to work through their stuff and there's family issues, I guess. Yeah, there's yep. a lot of things yep. that play into it. Meg, thanks so much for your time this morning. It's been really awesome speaking to you, yeah? No worries, Spike. Thanks so much for the invite. No problem. Have a great day. You too. Take care. No worries.
Um, that was Meg Mundell. Um, she's a NAM, Melbourne-based author, social researcher and advocate whose work has explored themes of social inclusion, belonging, nature, homelessness and spatial justice. Um, and she spoke to us about her work um, promoting lived experience, um, yeah, and how it can change social attitudes and achieving social and political change. Chile. 50 Years of Solidarity and Struggle, a special broadcast on the evening of the 14th of September. Hear from Chilean and Mapuche First Nations programmers and special guests from Latin America and beyond for a six-hour special broadcast including music, conversation, testimonies and past and current issues. Tune in for stories of resistance, struggle and solidarity. Thursday the 14th of September, 6pm to midnight on your community radio station, 3CR. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Come at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8.25 in the morning and we're just wrapping up the show for today. Um, I am the last man standing in studio. Uh, Spike and Inez had to head off a little bit early. Um, but how fantastic were those conversations across, uh, across today's show? I think there have been... Uh, some incredible opportunities to investigate questions of from self-determination of First Nations peoples to caring for community and community health um, to looking at the responsibilities of those in power, including in academia, to uh, reintegrate those concerns and responsibilities about, um, you know, bringing ethics to the front and uh, thinking about our accountabilities uh, in that as well and uh, ending it on belonging and those questions of lived expertise and how those are centered in uh, in public discussions, but also, you know, in, um, in policy-facing recommendations. And on that, I would highly recommend that folks uh, head to Melbourne Social Equity Institute's website uh, because there was an excellent report released earlier this year by 3CR's very own Kelly Whitworth in collaboration with Mike Collins, who looked at housing, activism, and local government um, studying or having a case study on the Bendigo Street occupation. And it was basically looking at Australian housing activism and local government around the uh, 
occupation of a series of vacant homes in Bendigo Street, Collingwood, that had been acquired by the state for the abandoned East-West Link project, which occurred in March 2016. And so there's some really important discussion about there, uh, uh, there about um, the local government level's responsibility to engage with uh, people with lived expertise and um, engage in activism around homelessness and housing insecurity. Um, I'll just take us uh, through a quick rundown of what we covered today. So first up, we were joined by Travis Lovett, a York commissioner and proud Kiripmara and Gunajamara man who spent his life advocating for truth and justice for First Peoples. Commissioner Lovett has held senior leadership roles in the Victorian Public Service, including as Executive Director and Acting Deputy Secretary, First People's State Relations at the Department of Premier and Cabinet, and has played a key role in supporting Victoria in treaty and truth-telling. He joined in as today to talk about Uruk for Justice, a report into Victoria's child protection and criminal justice systems, which was tabled in Victorian Parliament on Monday and made recommendations to the Victorian government to transform child protection and criminal quote-unquote justice systems to address systemic injustice against First Peoples. We were then uh, treated to the first part of a conversation between Spike and Professor Glenn McLaren, who lectures in philosophy, media, and society at Swinburne University, and in Science Week 2017 wrote the article, Science Owes Us an Apology, that discussed how science has been separated from the humanities and the impact that this has had on critical thought. So Spike spoke with Glenn about um, who science owes an apology to, what it owes an apology for, and what needs to happen for society to develop the wisdom required to overcome crises like climate change. After that, we were joined by Professor Melissa Haswell, a professor of practice in environmental well-being at the University of Sydney, to discuss the findings of a recently released report investigating the human health and well-being impacts of the fossil fuel industry. And this report, co-authored by Melissa Jacob Hegedus and Professor David Shearman, synthesizes peer-reviewed academic evidence of the myriad direct and indirect risks to human health and well-being posed by oil and gas developments, and highlights some serious concerns about the immediate health impacts of oil and gas extraction and processing for people and the environment, as well as their downstream contributions to the climate emergency. And finally, we were joined by Dr. Meg Mundell, who spoke with Spike about um, the collection of lived experience stories of homelessness called We Are Here, Stories of Home, Place and Belonging, and also spoke a bit about the Melbourne Zero Initiative and the importance of centering people's lived experiences of inclusion to change social attitudes and achieve social and political change. We'll catch you next week on Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.